My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to continue on in the uh, Together series. Uh, Last week, we talked about the idea that we gather together as the church to behold our God. Um, This week, I want to unpack the idea that we gather together as the church um, in this service, in this environment, for mutual encouragement uh, and mutual challenge. Um, how many of you have ever thought about uh, like the idea versus the reality? Like, let, me, let me put it this way. So there are lots of things that I like the idea of, but the reality of I'm not as like, keen on. I'll give you one. Winter is one. Like, I like the idea of winter. You know, like I like the idea of snow and the crispness of the air. And then I go outside this morning and it's like 38 and I'm like, this is why I moved to Charleston. So I didn't have to like have any of this. Like winter is one of those. But the one that my wife and I really disagree on is the fair. Like, you know, like the idea of the fair versus the reality of the fair. My wife loves the fair. And what I've tried to convince her of so far unsuccessfully is that she loves the idea of the fair because she'll talk about the fair and just be like, I love the fair. I love like the, the lights and the rides and the food and all of those things. And it's just this beautiful picture of like the fair. And I think about it and I go, no, 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 it's the fair. It's the traffic. If there's any way you're going to lose your salvation, it's in fair traffic. You know what I'm saying? Like it's there. It's like the fair traffic and it's like the food is like falling off of a paper plate. I'm trying to shovel it in my mouth as I like dodge children at 50 miles an hour. You know, the rides, they're great, but they were put up by some guy named Skeeter in a half hour with three fingers. I don't know. Like, it's idea reality check for me. One of the things that I like the idea of is is gardening. Is anybody in here like a gardener? Anybody have a garden or have gardened in the past? Okay, a few of you, all right. Like three of you, all right. (laughs) We go to Publix. Um, I like that idea of it. It's like there, there's something about that that I like the idea of. It's like, okay, kind of really kind of getting a garden, growing things, like making things grow. That's incredible. I like that idea. And then I remember that like I don't like care for 90% of vegetables. So gardening really is kind of out for me because that's really the only thing you can grow. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of research on this for a, a while back, just thinking like in my mind, maybe, I'll, maybe I want a garden. Maybe I want a garden. And one of the things that I found that's most important to having a garden, and those of you who garden can know this, is, is the environment in which you, you plant. That you have to have a suitable environment if anything is going to grow. So, so you've got to care about things like the soil, and you've got to care about things like the climate. You've got to start looking at all of these different environmental factors based on what it is that you're trying to grow. And I think that this, I think that this applies spiritually as well. Most of us would say, if you're a believer in Christ, most of you, I believe, would say, if asked, that you're trying to grow in your faith. You're trying to grow as a believer in Christ. And, and that's important. That's what we're called to do. However, the environment in which you are trying and attempting to grow in Christ is of extreme importance to the success of your growth. Jesus used the idea, this, this kind of uh, agrarian metaphor, a lot in the New Testament because he was speaking a, a lot of the time to farmers. And he talks a lot about uh, how your faith is very much, he put it in terms that they understood. He talks about that you grow your faith. He talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Um, be, you know, he talked about the kingdom of God in agrarian terms. He talked about faith as a mustard seed. He said that I'm the vine, you're the branches. He's contextualizing. But I think what he's also doing is showing us 
But if we're going to grow, we have to be in a suitable environment in which we can grow. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack this truth. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I want to unpack this truth. The worship gathering, Sunday morning, uh, we'll refer to Sunday morning, what we're doing in here as the worship gathering. The worship gathering is an environment in which faith, hope, and love grow. The worship gathering is an environment in which faith, hope, and love grow. Now, it's not the only environment, but I believe that it is perhaps the primary and the most conducive for growth in all three of these areas. And we're going to unpack that this morning from the scripture. So I don't want you to hear that you can't grow outside of the gathering. But I do believe that the worship gathering, what we do on Sunday morning, is so important to your ability to grow in Christ. I want to unpack that for you from the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Just stop by the connection table on your way out. That is our gift to you. Uh, if you have your iPad or you have your mobile device uh, and you have the Version app, you can uh, just click on that and search live events. Uh, all of my notes are there. Uh, or, you know, you can follow along behind me on the screen. However you choose to do it, we hope that you would engage with the scriptures this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what I want to do is just look at these six verses this morning in the idea that the worship gathering is an environment in which faith, hope, and love grow. Now, I think we need to break this down. I want to break this down into three parts. We'll talk about it this way. We'll talk about the grounding, okay, what's foundational for this truth. Then we'll talk about the action step, all right? So there's grounding. This is why we can take this action and then the environment in which that action occurs. So we'll look at grounding, we'll look at action, and we'll look at environment. So let's start with grounding. Now, Interestingly enough, this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 19, starts with the word therefore. And we've talked about this before. Anytime you come across the word therefore in the scriptures, you've got to see what it's there for, right? And so he doesn't just start a sentence with therefore. What he's doing is he's continuing an idea that he started back at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. So we have to understand the verses that come before. We can't just pick up in 19 and expect to understand the totality of what the writer wants to get across. We've got to understand what Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 talk about. Now the book of Hebrews is written to show how the Old Testament systems were pointing to and were fulfilled by Jesus. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. It's using the Old Testament system, the system that was used by the people of Israel in the Old Testament, to show us how Jesus fulfills all of those expectations that were put forth in the Old Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is discussing the way that man approached God in the Old Testament. That there was a specific way that man approached God in the Old Testament. Now, God is holy. 
I hope that that's not news, but God is holy. That means that he is perfect in everything that he is and everything that he does. He is without error. There is no sin in him. There is no wrong in him. But not only is God without error, he is also without equal. He is unrivaled in his glory, in his majesty, in his authority. So God is holy. Now we read in the Old Testament that in Genesis chapter 3, man falls into sinfulness. So man is sinful, and there is a divide now between God and man. And in the Old Testament, the people needed a system in which sinful man could approach holy God. And this is where we get what we call the Old Testament sacrificial system. The way that God had set in place through Moses, through the people, was a system in which sinful man could approach a holy God. And the way that they did that was through Old Testament sacrifices. What would happen is that every year the high priest, okay, who was called the mediator between God and man, would go into the temple. The temple represented God's presence among his people. And every year, once a year, the high priest would enter into the temple. And he would enter into the centermost room of the temple called the Holy of Holies, where it was said that the presence of God resided. And he would make a sacrifice of a lamb or a goat inside the Holy of Holies as a propitiation, as a substitute for the people's sin. He would say, we have sinned. We now kill something innocent. This goat, this innocent animal, we kill it as a representation of what has to happen in order for our sin to be forgiven. And this happened year after year after year. Only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies and then only once a year and he stood before the presence of God and he made a sacrifice that was good to cover the sins of the people in the eyes of God for the next year. But what Hebrews 10 shows us is that system in the Old Testament was just a shadow of Jesus' sacrifice. And we learn in the Gospels that we no longer have to make yearly sacrifices because Jesus has come. And he is better than any animal sacrifice. He is the great sacrifice of our God and King on our behalf. And the sacrifice that he made, he made once and for all. That Jesus dies on the cross. And his death covers our sin. That's what he's been building up to. And so in chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Now, this is the therefore. The writer of Hebrews is now saying, because Jesus has given us access to the Father, we can now enter into his presence with confidence, with boldness. And he uses the metaphor of a curtain, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So, so let's, let's do this, uh, if I can. Can I get this, can we get this curtain closed? Can I close this curtain? Is that going to be possible? Look at that. Doing that with my mind. It's incredible. <laughs> so let's put God on the screen. Can we put God up there on the screen? Do that? Okay. There it is. Okay. So this is how God, and I'll, 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 that's how God and man interacted at the beginning, was there was God, there was man, and then when sin enters into the picture, what happens is man and God are now separated, and the curtain that stood in the temple symbolized the separation between God and man. And so once a year, what would happen is the priest, the high priest, 
would go before God on behalf of the people. And he would go behind the curtain. And people would wait. Now, no one else was allowed to go behind the curtain. So much so that they actually would even tie a rope around the waist of the high priest and put a bell on the rope. So that if he was struck down or if he died while offering the sacrifice, the people could just pull him out of there. Nobody was allowed to go in but the high priest. No one. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple from the people symbolized sin that separated us from God. And every year they would wait on the priest to go in and do the business with God. Now, what the writer of Hebrews says happens is that when Jesus dies on the cross... He reopens the curtain. That's why Mark talks about this idea. He says that when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that now the curtain has been opened. We can open that curtain if we can, with my mind again. The curtain has been opened. Jesus now offers us access back to the Father. So you see what he's done here. He has reestablished the connection that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. And because he has done that, you and I now have confidence to have access to the Father. We don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to come through me or through Charlie or through Joel or through any other human being to reach God. You go through Jesus, who is now our great high priest, who has offered us access to the Father. He says, because we have access now, We can go through Jesus. That's the grounding for this next section. Let's look at the action point. So he moves into, he says, because we have confidence to enter into the holiest places, to enter into the presence of God through Jesus. He says there are now three action steps that take place. Therefore, since we have access to God through Jesus... He then goes on and says three let us's. There are three let us's. He says let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to hope. And let us stir up one another to love and good works. Now it's interesting that he uses the phrase let us. Now the implication here is that this is something that's happening between how many people? Multiple, right? He says, let us. He is implying a corporate event. He says, let us together draw near in faith. Let us hold fast in hope. Let us stir one another up to love and to good works. And if you're familiar at all with the scriptures, with the New Testament, you might recognize the three things that he highlights are pretty um, interesting because Paul also highlights these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Uh, Paul writes this to the church. 1 Corinthians 13, the very end of of the chapter, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 13, important. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Sometimes this has been called kind of the pillars of our faith. Faith, hope, and love. The structure of our belief system as Christians are found in these 
three characteristics and these three ideas of faith, hope, and love. And even here, the writer of Hebrews draws our mind back to these things. And he says, let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to hope. Let us stir one another up to love. Let us do this corporately. Not individually. Let's do this together. It's important that we do this together. Now, what is he asking us to do? He says, first, let us draw near in faith. Jesus has done what is necessary to give us access to the Father by forgiving our sin and providing the means by which we draw near. How do we draw near to the Father? We talk about this all the time. We draw near through grace. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor. When I didn't earn it, when I, didn't, when I wasn't worthy of being able to draw near to the Father, God in his love and in his grace gave Jesus, who's now granted access to the Father. And we receive this grace through faith. What is faith? Faith is simply believing God. I don't get God's grace by working hard or by doing some good things. I receive the undeserved favor of God by believing God. Now in the Old Testament, this was different. In the Old Testament, the people stood back from God. We just got out of Exodus. uh, And at the base of Mount Sinai, when God is getting ready to speak to the people, he's getting ready to speak to Moses. He tells Moses, come up on the mount. He's getting ready to give to him the law, the Ten Commandments. He says, come up on the mount. But he says, don't you dare allow the people to come up on the mount or to even touch the mountain. For if they do, they will die. And it says the people stand back in fear from the mountain. Why? God's holy. They're sinful. Moses is their mediator. God calls Moses and he says, the rest of you clowns stay at the bottom. That's not the way it works in the New Testament. It says now through Jesus, you and I have confidence to enter into the presence of God. Through Jesus, you can now draw near to God. The writer of Hebrews is speaking so beautifully of this idea that we draw near in the full assurance of our faith. We are able to draw near to God because we know that Jesus has made us acceptable in the eyes of God. And we come into his presence boldly through grace and mercy. That no longer do we stand back and watch as another goes before the Father for us, but through Jesus we can go before the Father ourselves. Um, I've worked several jobs, worked a lot of jobs, worked a lot of different, uh, had a lot of different opportunities, and I've worked for a lot of bosses. Um, I've worked for good bosses, and I've worked for not so good bosses. Um, and some of you guys know what that's like. Um, but but I, I've been called into the boss's office, you know, sev- several times. And, and really being called into the boss's office is really totally dependent on your relationship with your boss, Right? Like, if you get called in the boss's office and you know that you have a boss who thinks that your work is acceptable and likes you and gives you an opportunity to do good, like, being called in the boss's office at that point is not that big of a deal. You enter confidently, boldly. What can I do? But if you have a boss who you're always worried about might fire you, being called into the boss's office is a totally different set of circumstances, right? There's fear there. There's anxiety there. What Jesus has done is he's given us the confidence now that we can walk into the presence of the Father and know that we're accepted in him, know that he's pleased with us, know that he loves us, know that he has our best intentions at heart, know that he wants what's best for us, and so we can enter into the presence of God boldly, confidently, knowing that we are loved and accepted by Jesus. 
We no longer have to stand anxiously wondering if today God's going to hit me with that bolt of lightning. So we enter into the presence of God through faith, believing that Jesus has done what is necessary to open the curtain. Not only we draw near faith, but we hold fast to hope. It says that we hold fast to hope without wavering. So faith gives us this unshakable hope in this life. We know that whatever happens, we are safe and accepted by the Creator. And that nothing can cause us to lose our grip on Christ. Look at what he says. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, um, if you think about this, again, idea. The idea of this is great. Yes, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to Jesus without wavering. We're going to hold on. But then think about the reality of your week. How often are you tempted to waver holding on to the confession of your hope? How often? Let's, let's be real here. Let's be transparent in this moment. I don't, we don't need a hero. We don't need a superhero Christian. We have a superhero. His name's Jesus. The rest of us are just trying to do everything we can to follow him. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we can say there are probably lots of times in our lives when we are tempted to waver on the confession of our hope. And that if the security of our position with the Father, accepted, loved, known, treasured, if that depends on my personal commitment, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. If my standing before the Father depends on my holding on to him, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm in trouble because there's a lot of times when I'm tempted to let go and when I do want to let go of holding fast to the confession of my hope. But that's not what the writer says. It's not what he says. What, what does he say? He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, comma, important, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. Unwavering hope is brought about by faith and upheld by God, not by my personal hold on it. Um, so I'm teaching my son to walk. My son is eight months old, and he will wait no longer. Like, he is mobile, he's crawling, he's pulling up on things, he wants to move. And so I've been teaching my son to walk. And the way that we do it, some of you who have kids or have taught a kid to walk, you understand. You, you know what I'm talking about. You, you stand them up, and you hold their hands Right, and he stands right here, and he starts to just take these crazy steps, you know, like just like a crazy person. And he holds on to my hands, and I hold on to his, and we walk, right? Now, every about third or fourth step, something funny happens. He falls down. Like he stumbles, right? He loses his grip. When he, it's funny. I don't know how he does this. It's like when he stumbles, all of his body just goes blah. Like everything just like stops. He stops holding on. He just stumbles. Now, my son, I'm teaching him to walk. When he stumbles, he doesn't fall. Why? Because he's holding on to me? No. Because I'm holding on to him. And my strength is sufficient for him. And so when we look at this verse and we go, how in the world can I hold fast to the confession of my hope without wavering? Because I know that I stumble and let go all the time. Listen, you're not a Christian because you are holding on to God. You're a Christian because he's holding on to you. And the reason you wake up, if you're a Christian today, the reason you wake up tomorrow morning as a Christian is not because you're holding on to him, but because he keeps you. For he who promised is faithful. 
is faith. Let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to hope. Let us stir one another up in love. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. Um, Let us stir one another up to love and good works. The idea here really is to spur on. uh, And so I read a couple commentaries this week. It's like the idea is spurring on, like like in horse racing. Like where you would spur a horse on to go faster. I've never ridden a horse. Don't know a lot about horses. But I read another commentary that said this idea is about agitating. And I know a lot about agitating because I have brothers and sisters. It's the idea of this agitating that, we, that we're pushing one another along. So I have, um, I'm the oldest of four. Uh, I have a sister who is three years younger than me. And when we were growing up, my sister, like maybe you have this. My sister knew exactly how to like press my buttons, you know, how to like get under my skin. Like, like nobody else in the world knew how to irritate me the way that my sister knew how to. Not even my other siblings knew how to irritate me this way. There was like she knew how to do it, Right? And that's this idea, this stirring up, this agitating. So what does he say? He says that we, as believers, should be stirring one another up. We should be agitating. We should be drawing these things out of us, these responses of love and good works. He says, let us do this corporately. Let us consider how we can spur one another on to greater love and greater works. Jesus talks about this a lot. In John chapter 13, Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says, you want to know how people are going to know that you're my my disciples? If you love one another. If you love one another. If you're working with each other in acts of love, people are going to see that and they're going to recognize that there's something different about you. But not only that, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and set it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So love for one another leads to two things. Leads to identification as disciples of Jesus And it leads to a motivation for good works. If we love one another, people are going to recognize that and they're going to go, that looks different than everything else that I see. There must be something different there. And we get the opportunity then to say, it's Jesus. It's not us. It's Jesus. He's the reason that I'm able to love these men and women that I serve with, that I sit with, that I'm doing life with, that I'm in a missional community with. But love not only identifies us as disciples, it gives us motivation for good works. Jesus says, you love one another, go out in your love, do things for others so that they might see your good works, see your love for one another, and they too might glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the purpose of the church, that we would stir one another up to love and good works that by that others might see and know and trust in the way that we have. This is a call corporately. You can't stir one another up to good works individually, right? Like that takes another person. It takes another person to be able to do what is necessary, man, to push, to challenge, to encourage that we might grow in love and that we might grow in good works so that others might see and know and trust the Jesus that has transformed our lives. And so he gives us three action steps. He says, because we have confidence now, 
Because Jesus has done what is necessary to make us pleasing to the Father, makes us acceptable to the Father. Let us corporately draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to our hope and let us stir one another up to love and good works. The third part of this, where in the world does this happen? Where do you think this happens? Right here. Verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10. He doesn't even, there's not even a period. It's a continuation of the thought. 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we're honest, I think that all of us, even as believers in Christ, would say that, that we probably could stand some growth in these three areas. Like anybody good on faith? Anybody like, yeah, you know, I got enough faith. I got enough faith to last. That's, we're good. Like, you know, you can grow in faith. About hope? Like, mm, pretty hopeful. I'd say like 70% hopeful. We're probably pretty good. Love? We can all grow in these three areas. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can go, we always should be growing in these three areas. In faith, hope, and love. And so where can we most readily grow? What are the environment where we can begin to grow in these three areas? And it's the worship gathering. Writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect to meet together. You want to know how you're going to be encouraged to continue to draw near in the faith that God's provided you through Jesus? By standing and singing praises with other people and watching how God's drawing them close to him in faith. You want to know how you hold on fast to hope? By standing and seeing others in this room that are holding fast to hope in even maybe more dire or difficult circumstances than you are. How are we going to stir one another up to love and good works? Man, it's by considering. It's by looking for unique ways to challenge one another, to encourage one another, to love more, to do more, to serve more. That happens in this room. The environment in which faith, hope, and love grow happens here. And the writer of Hebrews says that. He says, don't neglect to meet together. Um, They actually believe that... um, the reason that some of the people had stopped meeting together with other believers was because of persecution. Like, the people had stopped coming to church because they were afraid if they went to church, they were going to be killed. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't be afraid of that. He says, don't allow persecution to keep you from the gathering. So what in the world would the writer of Hebrews say to us who don't allow persecution but preference to keep us from the gathering? I'd prefer to sleep in. I'd prefer to go to the beach. I'd prefer to do some things around my house. And listen, again, we don't want to be legalistic about this. Charlie said said it great last week. He's like, listen, we want you to be able to go on vacation with your family. Nobody's taking tally here. But listen, what we want you guys to understand, man, is you've got to begin to prioritize this environment, this time. Because if we're going to grow in faith, hope, and love, it happens in this environment. And so I thought Charlie said it great last week. What are you going to prioritize over this environment on Sunday morning? What are you going to do that's enable you to draw near to faith, hold fast to hope, and again, have people in your life that are stirring you up to love and good works that's not in this environment? So what are we going to prioritize? It says don't neglect to meet together. He's not saying that legalistically. He's not saying that to pile on guilt. He's saying that because this is what's best for you. Ecclesiastes 4 Verse we see on a t-shirt a lot, but I think it applies here. 
Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We gather together Sunday morning. This time, this place, because we believe that this environment is the environment in which together we can grow in faith and hope and love. This is the environment that God has ordained that we would gather together as the saints to grow in these areas. And so my hope and my prayer is that as believers... Man, man, we would begin to prioritize this in our life. I think most of us would say, yeah, we, we want to see. We like the idea of growing in faith. We like the idea of growing in hope. We like the idea of growing in love. But do we like the reality of it? And if we do, the reality of growing in these areas happens in this place. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true, that it is good, that it's helpful. Father, I thank you for the space that we can gather together freely, not under the threat of persecution. God, I don't know if that will always be true, but at this moment it is. And God, we're thankful for that. And so, Father, I pray that um, for myself, first and foremost, God, that I would begin to prioritize this. God, I confess that it is not always a priority in my own heart to be among the people of God for mutual encouragement and challenge. And so, God, I wouldn't be honest or right of me to not confess that Father, I know that you give grace. God, I know that your Holy Spirit works in hearts and minds to draw us back to yourself. And so, God, I pray that that's happening in this room this morning. God, I pray that we would be a church that values being together. That we would be a church who understands that we are better together. That we would be a church who understands, God, that you have given us one another for our encouragement, for our joy. God, and that we would take full advantage of the gift that you've given us in one another. It's for your name, for your glory, for your renown that we pray these things.